Hello, my friends. I am Mark Pantano, and this is Declaring Liberty, the podcast where the Constitution matters and we give absolutely no quarter to stupid people. So let me tell you what I've got uh, in store for you on the podcast today. We're going to uh, discuss immigration because it is the single most important issue facing us right now. And if you don't think so, you're just wrong, uh, because it is, and there's simply no getting around that. So we're going to discuss illegal immigration a bit. We are going to discuss the lawless courts and the concept of uh, judicial supremacy that most of the federal government has accepted, even though that is not what the Constitution mandates, far from it. So we will discuss the courts. Uh, What else do I have? Oh, we're going to discuss this uh, national popular vote movement, for lack of a better word, that's going on out there. They want to get rid of the Electoral College and elect a president by the national popular vote. And unfortunately, uh, that movement is gaining steam. They are pressing ahead, and uh, the uh, idiots on our side uh, don't even address it. I haven't really heard any prominent figures on our side, be it uh, politicians or, uh, you know, pundits and commentators with national platforms uh, addressing this much at all. So I will do so uh, for whatever good that does. We'll discuss that. And if we have some time at the end... We're going to get into higher education because, as you know, that uh, is one of my little pet peeve areas. And and really, it is a major problem for lots of reasons. Our higher education system is a horrible mess. It's a scam. And even worse, it is uh, one of the factors contributing to the destruction of our country and our future. So we'll, we'll, we're going to discuss a little bit about the racism going on on college campuses. I like to highlight that. And by the way, if I wanted to, I could dedicate this show to covering just instances of anti-white racism on college campuses. And I could fill a show and do it every single day and discussing and discuss nothing but anti-white racism on college campuses. Uh, but I think we'd all get disgusted with that. But I have a little bit on that. And, uh, oh yeah, these snowflakes uh, don't like free speech either. So we'll get into that. Okay, so first, I want to read you a part of a story from the Baltimore Sun. I think this was from today. And by the way, today is May 31st. And it begins this way. A woman's body found in a shopping cart outside a northwest Baltimore apartment building two weeks ago was headless, according to two police sources. Baltimore police have been investigating since the afternoon of May 12th when the body of an unidentified black or Hispanic woman was found wrapped up and placed inside of a shopping cart at the Clarks Lane Garden Apartments at 3901 Clarks Lane. Um, a decapitated body in a shopping cart in a major American city. I hate to tell you this, but you better get used to it, folks, because this is what happens when you uh, allow mass migration, illegal immigration from the third world. Uh, 
You know, we are not, we are not blessed uh, by our neighbors to the south. We are not bordered by an industrialized, first world, healthy economy, healthy society country. Mexico is basically a third world shithole. It is a narco state. The, for all intents and purposes, the drug cartels run that country. There are entire areas of that country completely under the control of the Mexican drug cartels. So, you know, we, so we have this border with a, a third world narco state. And to their south is, is all these failed third world communists and socialist uh, shithole countries of Central America. And, of course, we have millions upon millions of illegal aliens from those countries streaming into our country. And along with, you know, many who are decent people, and I'm sick and tired of having to point that out. Of course, many of them are decent people. But I don't care. They still need to get the hell out because uh, it's illegal for them to be here. If they want to come here and it benefits our country to have them here, then there's a legal process for that. So just because they may be decent people is irrelevant. But I will acknowledge that not all of them are criminals. There certainly are some decent people in there. But along with the decent lawbreakers, if there is such a thing, who are flooding into our country are uh, many very bad actors. The people who President Trump referred to as animals, and of course the Democrat Party lined up in denouncing him for, for referring to uh, MS-13 gang members as animals. So we have, we have these animals, MS-13, we have uh, sex traffickers, drug traffickers, we have Mexican drug cartels, we have all sorts of the worst elements of a failed Mexican uh, narco state in our country now, given free reign. Uh, they're all over the place. We have a major problem with MS-13 all over this country. And, um, you know, Baltimore certainly has a lot of that activity going on. And uh, decapitation is one of their favorite tactics. They like to take their machetes and uh, lop off limbs, including, uh, you know, chopping off people's heads. And so to find a decapitated body stuffed into a shopping cart in Baltimore, my first inclination is to think that this probably has something to do with MS-13 or some related illegal alien underworld type of activity. So that, that's what I think is going on. Um, that's just a guess, an educated guess, but it is a guess nonetheless. Perhaps it will turn out to be something else, but I would be surprised. Let me read a little bit more from this story. Baltimore police have repeatedly declined to provide details on the case. Oh, well, see there, that, that's all you need to know. Because whenever an illegal alien is involved, uh, even if it's uh, MS-13, lots of times the police suppress that information. They don't want that out. We've got to cover up our illegal alien problem in this country. We have to cover up our MS-13 and Mexican drug cartel violence problem in this country. And we just, you know, you know, lots of times you'll see stories and, and they just won't mention the nationality of the person at all. And whenever there is 
you know, an Hispanic surname, um, and there's no more information other than that, I get suspicious because nine times out of ten, if it's an illegal alien, they do not tell you that information. So think about all the crime that does get reported that illegal aliens are committing, that we know about. Now consider the fact that that's probably only 1% of the crime that's reported that we don't even know that's committed by illegal aliens because they suppress that information. And then on top of that, understand this. The overwhelming majority of violent crime and rapes and all this kind of horrible stuff, we never, we never find out about. It's, it's not all reported. Trust me. I spent many years in the criminal justice system as a defense attorney and as a uh, prosecutor prosecuting these kinds of cases and uh, they are almost never covered by the local media and certainly not by the national media so most of these things you would be surprised to 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 learn how much horrible crime is committed in our communities that uh, most people have absolutely no idea about because it's not ever reported so we've got that. We've got uh, decapitated bodies showing up in shopping carts in Baltimore City. So, in Baltimore. Um, welcome to America 2019, my friends, and America 2020, 2021, and beyond. Expect more of this with more frequency. It's only going to get worse. Even if we were to magically seal the border right now, it's only going to get worse. Uh, because these people aren't going anywhere. And they have whole net... We have, we have thousands of these MS-13 gang members who, even if we close the border right now, there are going to be more of them. They are going to multiply. They are recruiting more and more of these uh, thugs into their ranks as we speak. So this problem is only going to get worse because we're not serious about dealing with it. We're just not. Um, related to this, yesterday President Trump tweeted out an announcement that he is slapping a 5% tariff on all goods coming from Mexico. And that I, I believe that each month thereafter that Mexico does not help us stop this uh, flood of illegal aliens into our country. For each month thereafter, Trump is going to increase the tariff by another 5% until it reaches a total of 25%. Now, I'm all for this. You know, whatever m methods we can use to try to force Mexico to put an end to this, I am in favor of. And, uh, you know, typically I am, um, you know, tariffs are, they're a dangerous game to play. They, if done correctly, it, they can be uh, beneficial, both in raising money and getting other countries um to behave. Um, but in this case, you know, I don't care if there's risk or not. I don't care if there's any economic uh, downside in the short term for our country or not. Because this problem of illegal aliens flooding this country is so important. It's so much more important than any short term economic gain that could possibly gain economic pain that could possibly result uh, from these tariffs. I don't care. The problem with illegal immigration so far outweighs that as to uh, to not even be worth considering in my view. 
we've got to try everything we can to stop this this problem. Um, I, I here's here's a thing that Trump is not addressing though, and I don't know why he doesn't. And that is remittances. You know, he's slapping on these tariffs to try to use the economic stick to try to inflict some pain on Mexico economically if they do not help us end this problem. But Mexico receives billions of dollars each year in remittances from their citizens illegally in our country sending money back to Mexico. And we've done nothing about that. Why are we not slapping uh, taxes on <clears throat> transfers of these these monies back to Mexico, or hell, confiscating them completely? Use 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 uh, taxes on remittances to pay for the wall. I mean, there's so many things that we should be doing that we're not. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not in favor of this. I certainly am. So, you know, I would have started out with 25% tariff. You know, whatever. Whatever you got to do, we need to do everything. And here's the thing. People need to understand this. People don't seem to understand this about Mexico. They are not our friend. They really are not. In many ways, they are a hostile power to the United States. They are intentionally facilitating the invasion of our country. As far as I'm concerned, this is an act of war. They're violating our sovereign territory. You know, but they, they get to pretend they're not doing it. Oh, well, these are just poor migrants. This is not just poor migrants. These poor migrants are being encouraged to do this by the government of Mexico. Mexico is facilitating this invasion. They are helping them. They are aiding and assisting and abetting these illegal alien invaders to come to this country. They tell them how to do it. They tell them where to cross. You know, when there's when these huge migrant caravans of thousands of illegal aliens coming up from Central America, coming through Mexico to the United States, Mexico, the government of Mexico, is helping them get through the country and reach our border. They are telling them what to say when they get here in order to make phony claims of asylum so that they don't get deported. By the way, that's another thing the president could do right now if he were truly serious about this. And I hate to tell this to you, um, but, you know, listeners of this podcast, uh, you guys are more serious, I know, than than most uh, other people out there. So I can tell you this, when I, when I try to bring up these facts on social media and elsewhere, I get people getting very angry at me. Look, don't get angry at me. I'm just telling you the truth about this situation. And here's one of the truths about this situation. Much of our current problem, because you hear this all the time, you know what's happening. These illegal aliens get here. Some of them get uh, apprehended and then they're immediately released. Some short little processing and then they're immediately released into the country. And many times, we're flying them. At taxpayer expense, we're putting them on airplanes and sending them all across the country. Or we're putting them on buses. And not only that, we're giving them money. 
Did you know that? We're giving them, uh, you know, credit cards loaded with money, EBT cards, welfare. They get here, we pick them up, we fill out a form, we tell them to come back in five years for a hearing that they're never going to show up to, and we put them on welfare, we put them on a plane, and we send them to wherever in the country they want to go. That is what is happening. And that, the problem is that they are taking advantage, well, they're not even, they're abusing our asylum system. They're, they're coming here, they're being told by Mexico what to say, they're, they're telling them that they're here, they tell us that they're here claiming asylum, that they have a fear of persecution or whatever, economic hardship or whatever it is in their, from their, in their country of origin, and, and they're claiming asylum here. And then that's all it takes. And we, we give them the welfare, we give them the plane ticket, the bus ride, whatever, send them where, wherever they want to go, tell them to come back five years later, they never show up, we don't look for them, and that's it. They're here, they start popping out kids. Now those kids are American citizens. Why? Because we're blithering idiots here in this country. No rational country would give birthright citizenship to people who, are, who have kids, who, people who are here illegally, and, and have kids, and then we give automatic citizenship to those children. That's ridiculous. That's not what the 14th Amendment uh, calls for, but we do it nonetheless. We don't even have a law. It's not even an act of Congress that requires that. This is just a bureaucratic thing we started doing a few decades ago, and we just continue to do like a bunch of friggin' fools. Okay, so, uh, yeah, so this is all a result, or much of it is a result of the asylum process. Now, here's the thing that um, is the truth that I can't really tell seriously to a lot of people on our side because they don't want to hear it. All they want to do is, is um, they just want to repeat the line that President Trump is doing everything he can and that this is all the fault of Congress and the Democrats. Now, pff, there is plenty of fault on Congress and the Democrats. Um, that goes without saying. But... The idea that President Trump is doing all that he can is not true. I wish, you know, I wish that he were doing all he could, because if he were doing all he could, then we would, uh, we would be going a long way towards stopping this illegal immigration. But he's not doing all he could, and one of the things he could do is he can stop this entire phony asylum process right now. The statutes passed by Congress give the president the authority to shut down all asylum requests right now. We do not have to allow any of these people in. We can kick them right the hell out. We can say, sorry, we're not taking any more asylum requests. Get the hell out. And the law provides that these people can be immediately deported. They don't get a court hearing. These determinations can be made by uh, immigration officers expedited removal we can kick them out immediately shut down asylum and kick them right out i don't for, for the life of me i don't know why the president well i don't want i was going to say for the life of me i don't know why the president doesn't do this but unfortunately i think i know why the president doesn't do it and and the answer isn't very good um look I think that um, the 
single biggest issue that got President Trump elected in 2016 was illegal immigration. It remains a very high priority for the American people. If we have effectively stopped the illegal immigration problem, then it is not really an issue in the 2020 campaign. Uh, so that's that's all that's all I'm gonna say. I don't know if that's the reason. I fear it may be the reason because nothing else makes any sense. The rhetoric doesn't match the reality. If this was the crisis that it is and that the president says it is, then you would think he would do everything in his power to shut it down. Now it wouldn't solve the entire problem. We need Congress to actually give a damn about the country and do its job to secure our sovereignty. But in the meantime, there is a lot more that we could be doing. We're just not doing it. And I don't, I mean, this, this is not, this is not a tough call. I mean, this is, this is easy. It's right there in the statute. The president has full authority to do this. He should shut this down now. That would solve a lot of the problem. And it would discourage a lot of people from making the trek up here. Right now, they know that all they got to do is get to our border and make their phony asylum request, and they're in. If we put an end to that, well, all these people are going to, all these people who have yet to come here, who are planning on illegally coming here, they will hear about it. That, oh, crap, we can't get in anymore making our phony asylum requests. And a lot of them won't bother trying, because then they're just back to trying to sneak in you know, and evade border patrol and, and make it in that way. Right now, they're not doing that. They don't have to do that. You know, and that's the other thing, too. We need a border wall, but the border wall is not going to, going to solve much of the problem that we have right now because they're not sneaking in. You know, they're not walking through the desert, a lot of them. They're not walking through the desert, crossing the Rio Grande and all that. They don't have to. They're just going to... Uh, you know, ports of entry and, um, you know, making their asylum requests. They're just surrendering to Border Patrol. They're finding Border Patrol agents, going up to them and surrendering themselves and making asylum requests. That's all they have to do. They don't have to run through the desert and evade our law enforcement. They just go right up to law enforcement and make their phony asylum requests. If we stop this phony asylum process... Just shut it down right now. They're gonna if they want to come here, they're gonna have to go back to running through the desert and trying to evade. And a lot of them won't do it. Why do you think this has exploded over the last couple of years? Because it has become so easy. They don't have to risk their life walking through the desert. They can just come to our ports of entry and make their phony asylum request. And uh, Trump can shut it down right now. He is fully authorized by statute to do it, and he's not doing it. That's, you know, that's the fact. That's the simple truth. You can go look it up yourself if you don't believe me. The information is out there. I know, you know, the, the, the talking heads on our side, they, they don't want to tell you that. They just want to tell you that Trump is doing everything he can, and those damn Democrats, and blah, 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 blah. Yes, those damn Democrats. Yes, those damn cowardly rhinos. Uh, but there is more that we can be doing. And I think it would be far more beneficial to the country if 
the public figures on our side were bringing this up and putting a little more pressure on the Trump administration to crack down on this with the tools that are currently available to him. But we don't. We put no pressure on him to do this. And uh, the issue remains unresolved. It's actually getting worse. The illegal immigration problem is much worse now than when Trump took office. And uh, the issue is alive and well for the 2020 campaign. I don't know if that's what the, uh, the point of not doing everything that uh, we could be doing is or is not. I suspect that it is because I have no other rational explanation for why we wouldn't be doing it. So that's that. Now, along those lines, here's a story from The Hill from yesterday. Judge rejects... Uh, judge rejects Trump administration request to start border wall construction despite injunction. Let me read a little of this. A federal judge on Thursday rejected the Trump administration's request to start using diverted military funds to build a wall on the southern border while officials appeal the judge's prior ruling, blocking them from using those funds for wall construction. California U.S. District Court Judge Hayward Gillum, Haywood Gillum, an Obama appointee, naturally, had on Friday issued a preliminary injunction that stopped President Trump from using some diverted Department of Defense funding. On Thursday, Gilliam again decided against administration officials who sought to pause his previous ruling. Gilliam made Thursday's ruling in a written order and did not issue an opinion along with it. Oh, why would he? Why explain yourself to the American people? Administration officials had, in a filing on Wednesday, requested the stay while, the appeal, uh, while they appeal Gilliam's ruling, asking that the judge either immediately reject their request or make a ruling by June 5th. The officials said that they will appeal their case to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. goes on and on and on. Let me skip to the end here because it um, references another court. Uh, okay, this is another court. Um, a federal judge in Washington, D.C. is also considering a separate request for a preliminary injunction to stop Trump from using the diverted military funds for border wall construction. That lawsuit was filed by House Democrats, who argue that diverting the funds under Trump's national emergency declaration issued earlier this year violates Congress's authority to appropriate funds. Okay, this goes back to Trump's emergency declaration, you'll remember. Um, it is several months ago now, I guess, where he's, he declared a national emergency. He, voked, he invoked a statute. I think it was, it's uh, the National Emergencies Act, which allows the president to declare an emergency <clears throat> and allows him to divert certain funds uh, in order to combat uh, whatever he has declared to be an emergency. And he, so he declared this uh, emergency with respect to our southern border and the illegal aliens flooding in, and he freed up money under this act in order to begin construction of the border wall. We all applauded that. That was all great. Um, but I told you at the time I wasn't going to go anywhere because it would immediately be stopped by the courts, which it has been. It's been stopped by the courts. And, um, you know, people think, oh, well, the Supreme Court will slap that down and uh, rule in favor of Trump. Yeah, maybe. 
it's possible. It's also equally possible that they um, they don't. I don't know. Because when it comes to issues that uh, touch on sensitive political topics, you cannot trust the court whatsoever. Now, if there is some case of statutory construction as it relates to some contract between two businesses and you don't care about the case and it's not in the public, uh, you know, it's not being covered in the media, nobody gives a damn, it's just your typical case between two parties that reaches the Supreme Court, yeah, they'll probably do the right thing, follow the law in those cases. But when it comes to a heated political topic, you cannot trust them whatsoever. And the problem is, we do not have a solid majority of uh, constitutionalists on that court. We have three, well, maybe three and a half, and uh, a waffler, and then kind of half a waffler. The three good ones uh, are Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas. The hardcore waffler that you cannot trust on, that you cannot trust at all, on any issue is Chief Justice John Roberts and the, you know, half a waffler is uh, Brett Kavanaugh. I was never happy with Brett Kavanaugh's appointment. I argued uh, viciously, uh, ferociously, passionately in his defense when he was being smeared and uh, treated unfairly with that whole, that whole episode with his confirmation. But that you know, that didn't change my mind about being excited about him. I, I, I never was. He's a Bush guy. He's an establishment guy. Um, he has lots of opinions from uh, his time on the circuit court that uh, give me pause, that make me worry about him. And since he's joined the court now, he's not been on there very long, so he's not taking part in a whole lot of decisions. But in some of the decisions that have come down, it has given us uh, reason to be concerned. And so uh, time will tell what he ultimately turns out to be. But my fear is that he is another John Roberts. In which case, you can't really count on him all that much either. So we do not have... The point is that if this reaches the Supreme Court, it, it cannot be assumed that the Supreme Court is going to rule the right way on this. Now this, this, uh, this case challenging, well, one of the cases, the one that this article references, this uh, case in, in Washington, D.C., filed by House Democrats. Now think about this. President issued an emergency declaration pursuant to a law passed by Congress. And the Congress is suing the president, saying that he ha doesn't have the authority to do it, even though he's doing it pursuant to a law that they passed. This is the bizarro world we live in now, folks. Absolutely bizarre. Absolutely absurd. But this is where we are. And of course, you know this judge is going to side with them. Look, I've got problems with this National Emergency Act. Uh, there's a lot of things in that that greatly expand the power of the executive branch um, that I believe unconstitutionally give away Article One powers to the executive branch. I've got problems with the law, but it nonetheless is a law that is in place. It's been in place since I believe the 70s, and so this is a tool at the president's disposal. He invoked it, and uh, so to have members of Congress 
challenge the president on, on the basis of his invoking a law that they passed is just absurd. But anyway, so he, he, he invokes this national emergency to free up this border wall funding. And of course, that's not going to go anywhere. And if the Supreme Court does eventually rule in the president's favor, that's not going to be like for years. So, I mean, I think that pushes us well into, uh, well past his first term. And at that point, he might not even be in office anymore. And that emergency declaration will be rescinded. And, it, you know, it got us absolutely nowhere. That is why it was important that we we use the legislative process to get what we needed here, to get the border wall funding. But we gave that away, too. You know, Trump shut down the government um, and then caved. But, you know, that was baked in the cake. The time, hate to relive the past, but, you know, we got to do it if we're going to be honest about the situation we face and to learn from these mistakes going forward. And part of the problem is our base. I got to tell you, folks, part of the problem is us. Well, not me, because I, I wasn't one of these people. Um, but when you applaud the president's every move, no matter what he does, and you don't bring any pressure to bear on him, then he is free to take the path of least resistance. And that's what he did a couple years ago, which led to the government shutdown, which led to us not getting any money for the border wall, which led, him ha led to him having to declare a national emergency, which is going nowhere because it will be blocked in the courts, just like I told you it would. And the path of least resistance that he took a couple years ago was not to veto that omnibus bill. This, when was this? Um, I guess it was 2017? Maybe 2018? I don't remember. This was this huge, massive, ridiculous boondoggle spending bill that the president said he wanted funding for the wall included within. And of course, Congress, controlled by Republicans at that time, because, oh, Republicans are so great, right? I wonder why they lost control of the House, those feckless, worthless cowards. Uh, perhaps because they didn't do a damn thing to help this country. They didn't get rid of Obamacare. They didn't do anything to secure the border. Uh, they didn't pass border wall funding. It was pathetic. So glad we don't have to deal with Paul Ryan anymore. So anyways... Trump wants border wall funding, says he will veto any bill that doesn't include border wall funding. And what do what do the Republicans who control Congress do? They give him a bill that doesn't include any border wall funding. And so uh, what did President Trump do? Did he veto it like he promised he would? No, he signed it. Thereby losing all his leverage from that point forward to get border wall funding. That was when we lost on this issue. Right there, that moment, when he signed the omnibus bill a couple years ago, that is when we lost the fight for border wall funding. Because <clears throat> we could have forced Congress to include it by vetoing that bill. And once you cave, once you say, I'm going to veto it if you don't give me this border wall funding, and then you cave and you sign it. Well, now Congress knows going forward that you are just a bluffer and that they can call your bluff because they know you're going to sign it. 
because you don't want a government shutdown, especially now, because since he signed the omnibus bill, he did shut down the government over this issue and then caved on that. So Congress is never going to appropriate this money unless they want to. And they're not going to be forced to. They're not going to do it because Trump threatens a veto because they know his veto threat is just bluster. Um, And right now we have a Congress that will certainly under no circumstances give him border wall funding. They control the House of Representatives. All they're doing is spending their time trying to impeach him. They're not going to pass any border wall funding. I guess we'll have to see what Congress we have after the 2020 elections. But at that point, we might not even have Trump in office. So we're just going to have to see. We're going to have to see what we have come 2021 to work with. But you can kiss goodbye any possibility of getting border wall funding. And which is why Trump had to do this national emergency thing, which, you know, at that point, what other choice do you have? You gave away your only real power in our system to get the legislation that you wanted. You gave that away when you caved on your veto threat and then you caved on the government shutdown. So the only thing you could do at that point is this uh, national emergency declaration trying to access some of the funds that way. And let's get another thing straight. It was only a small portion of the funds needed for construction of the full border wall. But that was the only way to get any money was to declare this national emergency by invoking this law, the National Emergencies Act, passed by Congress. But, like I said, that's that's not going to go anywhere. It's already being slapped down in the courts. And um, who knows what the Supreme Court will do if they even take up a case. They might not even take it up. They might just let a lower court ruling, striking it down, stand, and then that that'll be the end of it. And if they do ever get to it, and they do side with the Trump administration, um that's far off. That's far off to the point where Trump might not even be in office at that point. So, you know, lessons learned, right? Um, But here's the problem. Here's the real lesson. Look, the president doesn't need to learn this lesson. The president, you know, he's got smart people on his staff. They know this. They know how the process works. They know what happens when you give away your leverage by caving in on a veto threat. They know they were pissing this away. They had to. If they didn't, all his advisors should be fired and he should get in some people who know what the hell they're doing. Because this... uh, Anyway, so... The people who really need to learn the lesson, and who won't, are the people on our side, voters, who do not put any pressure on the president. Look, support does not mean blind allegiance to every decision that your guy makes, okay? Trump is not a perfect person. He does not have the gift of foresight, okay? He's not playing 4D chess. He's not superhuman. You know, all of these ridiculous characteristics that I see people on our site attribute to him, it's ridiculous. He's a person, He's making decisions. Sometimes they're good decisions. Sometimes they're bad decisions. None of us are perfect. None of us always do the right thing. None of of us can see the future and know how things will turn out. Now, there are things you should be able to anticipate. Like if you cave on a veto threat, you're never going to get what you want out out of Congress. That, you know, you don't need the gift of foresight to be able to to see how that's going to play out. 
You know, we have a long history of presidents caving on veto threats and then just, you know, basically neutering themselves with respect to getting anything they want out of Congress. I mean, that's not rocket science. So some things are certainly foreseeable. But, I mean, the point is, if, if you are... And the president knows this. You know, the president famously said while he was running for president that he can go out on Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody in the street and he wouldn't lose any support. What he's saying there is, I have people, my, my most ardent supporters will support me no matter what the hell I do. And while that is good in, in terms of, um, you know, keeping your poll numbers up, having them come out and reelect you and all that kind of thing, it's good for that. But uh, for us, in terms of trying to exert some, some pressure on the president to do something that we want him to do, it's not good for us in the least. Uh, because he knows that he doesn't have to take into consideration what, he, what we want, what promises he's made on issues. doesn't matter. Because he knows his most ardent supporters will defend any decision that he makes. And that's the problem. Okay? I voted for Trump. I will vote for him again. I support the president. I don't support everything he does. Absolutely not. Uh, he's done some things wrong. And, you know, he has... We do ourselves. We do him no favors by just blindly supporting in knee-jerk fashion anything that he says or anything that he does even when it runs counter to previous things he has promised okay so that that's the point and he knew that he would suffer no consequences with most of his base if he caved in on that veto and didn't get the border wall funding and that you know he was exactly right the problem is he's never going to get that border wall funding now he's not even going to get it through this emergency declaration um Certainly not in the short term. If he ever does, it won't be for years out. He will have to be reelected, and he will have to get a favorable ruling out of the Supreme Court somewhere down the line. That's the only way he's going to get that money, because he's going to be blocked in the courts. And having uh, given away the store by caving in on the veto and the government shutdown, there's there's no other option. There's no other way to get this money. So we've got that going on, and. That leads me to, I want to talk about the courts. And here's the other thing. Now, it's, it's, it's especially true with respect to illegal immigration, but it is true with respect to other issues as well. We have a serious problem with the judicial branch. When the framers wrote the Constitution, they had intended that the judicial branch would be the weakest branch of the federal government. Now, you hear this cliche, co-equal branches of government. You know, we got the legislative, the executive, and the judicial, and they're co-equal branches of government. Okay, well, that is, that is a misleading cliche. It's a term that appears nowhere in the Constitution. They don't say co-equal branches of government. That's just some ridiculous cliche that we throw out there. Because we don't really teach the Constitution. We teach, to the extent we teach it at all, we teach a cliched Sunday morning cartoon version of the Constitution. 
The branches are co-equal, if you're going to use that ridiculous term, only to the extent that they are, they are, um, they have full authority over their areas. Okay? Here's, the, here's how they are not co-equal, though. The, the, the court's role, the judicial branch's role, is very, very small as compared to the other branches, especially Congress. So they, are, they have complete authority in their area, but it's a tiny area. They're only co-equal with respect to the, the, their relative powers in their respective areas. That's it. But in terms of the scope of their respective areas, there's no comparison. The role of the judiciary was supposed to be very, very small. The branch of government that was supposed to have the most authority was Congress. And it makes sense. Congress makes the law. Right? So they were the ones who were supposed to have the most power. The executive branch is only supposed to execute the law. Aside from the president having, you know, foreign affairs and responsibilities and being the commander in chief of the military, other than that, the president's only role is to execute the laws passed by Congress. So the authority over making these big decisions about the future of the country, the laws we are going to have, all of this stuff, that's Congress's role. They are the elected representatives of the people. They are the legislators. They are the ones making the lawmaking decisions. Theirs was supposed to be the most important uh, of the branches. Well, yeah, I don't want to say most important, but they were supposed to have the, the broadest scope in terms of making decisions for the country. President is simply to execute those decisions that the Congress makes. And then the court's role is supposed to be very small. The court's charge is to decide cases and controversies. That is to say, they are to decide cases between litigants. So one guy sues another guy. That's the extent of their authority. They have authority over that case in their court. That's it. I hear it said often, and it grinds my gears like you have no, no idea. And by the way, I think that might have been the first time I ever used the phrase grind my gears. I don't think I've ever used that before. I just summoned my inner Peter Griffin. Anyways, um, where was I? Oh yeah, I hear it said all the time that it's the, the court's job to decide whether a law is constitutional or not. People actually believe, because they, they, I, I, I hear, they say literally this, they believe that Congress passes a law and then the courts immediately, it's their job to decide in all cases whether that law is constitutional or not. These people are just completely talking out of their ass because they've been miseducated they have no idea what they're talking about. That is not the role of the court. The court doesn't get to automatically rule on the constitutionality of a law passed by Congress. To the extent that they can do so, it's only within the confines of deciding a specific case before them between two, two litigants. That's it. If a law is at issue in the case, then under Marbury versus Madison, the court has the... Um, 
ultimate responsibility to decide whether that law passed by Congress is constitutional or not. So say Congress passes some law, um, fine, you know, which, which levies fines, fines upon people for doing or not doing X, Y, or Z, right? And so we fine somebody under that statute. So that person gets fined and they say, hey, Congress didn't have any authority to pass that law. That law is unconstitutional. I sue to uh, challenge my conviction. Um, so now you have that person. He's a litigant. He has sued, you know, appealed his case against the state. So now you have a, this litigant, the guy who was fined, versus the state. Those are your two parties. It goes to court. The court has jurisdiction um, over that case alone. But at issue in that case is whether or not that law that this guy was fined under was constitutional. Because he says, Congress had no authority to pass that law, therefore you can't fine me under that law. It's unconstitutional. Well, the court has to decide, uh, according to Marbury versus Madison, it has the authority, the implicit authority, because it's not an explicitly um, described authority under Article 3. But the, the court has the implicit authority to rule and decide whether or not that law was in fact constitutional. And if they find that it was not, Congress didn't have the authority to pass that law for whatever reason, they can invalidate that law, strike it down, and, and rule in that guy's favor who had been fined, vacate the judgment against him, and all that kind of stuff. But it is only, it is only as a result of a case being filed that the court gets to pass on the constitutionality of a law. But people really think that a law gets passed by Congress and that the Supreme Court can just, you know, decide on its own whether, you know, whether or not the law is constitutional. That's not the role of the court at all. Okay, that's just, that's just one example of how people have no idea what the hell they're talking about. So the courts, my whole point in this is the court's role is very small. They don't have the right, they don't have the authority under Article 3 of the Constitution. Article 3 of the Constitution is the article that sets up the courts and lays out their authorities, right? And by the way, the only court uh, laid out in the Constitution is the Supreme Court. That's it. That's the only constitutional court. Um, you know, the only court created by the Constitution. All the other courts, the circuit courts, which are the appellate courts, and the district courts, which are the trial courts, they, those were all created by an act of Congress, the Judiciary Act back in whatever, 18-whatever. Uh, so that is, that's how we got the courts. Now, they're, they're constitutional because the Constitution gives Congress the authority to create those courts, and that's what they did. Uh, that's just an aside. But the court's role is very, very limited. And it was the framers' intent that the courts, the judicial branch, was to be the least powerful of the courts. And it makes sense because the judicial branch is completely unelected. These are just lawyers who, for one reason or another, and in our modern day and age, the reason is just completely politics. And we'll discuss that in a minute, who, who judges really are. But... It's just politics. That's how they get their jobs. We're not getting the best and brightest. We're not getting the most impartial and best legal minds out there to be judges. Now, some of them, you know, could be described that way. But most of them are not, especially at the district court level. These trial court judges, these are all political patronage jobs, my friends. 
Most of these people, or I didn't mean to get into this right now, but what the hell. Who are these judges? No, I will save that. I will save that. Let's just say that most of them get their appointments from, uh, as a result of pure politics. That's it. They're just lawyers. They're politically active lawyers. Most of them are pure political hacks. That's how they got their job. And they didn't automatically shed their political hackery just because they got appointed to the court and now put on a, a black robe and insisted everyone call them your honor. Which, by the way, always ticked me off. I, I, I hate referring to these people as your honor. You know, and, and typically, I don't. When I go to court, I just call them judge. I, I don't like calling them your honor. Anyways, that's just another, another little aside. I don't think there's anything honorable about most of these people. And uh, damned if I'm going to refer to them as your honor, as if they're somehow, you know, better than the rest of us because they're up there on their high bench with their fucking black robes. Anyways, so we have... Anyway, so, so the reason it makes sense that the judiciary would be the, the least powerful of the branches of government is these, these people are completely unelected. They are outside of the democratic process. They are outside of our, you know, the way we elect our, our representatives. They don't represent us. They're appointed and then that's it. They have life appointments. They are answerable to no one. They don't stand for re-election. They don't have to stand for retention elections or they're not subject to recall. They can be impeached for bad behavior, but that's about it. And how often do we impeach judges? Look, we talk about impeaching presidents all the time. When was the last time you heard anybody talk seriously about impeaching a judge? We've got about a thousand federal judges. Not one of them should be impeached. Not a damn one of them. No, but, you know, pretty much every president, we, we talk about impeachment. But judges? Nah, nothing. Nothing. By the way, if we start impeaching judges, that would get this problem under control. But, you know, we don't do that. Because we have accepted the notion of judicial supremacy. How asinine is this, by the way? We never question judges. Never. The only branch of government that is completely unaccountable to the people, and yet we can't question them? Are you freaking kidding me? This is not at all the system the framers set up. This is not at all the system they intended, especially given that the other two branches of government have ceded so much authority to the courts. They have empowered the courts. And here's the, the issue I wanted to get to with this, with this, uh, you know, Trump having to go to a judge and beg a judge to let him spend money to build the wall. Oh, please, district court judge. This guy never stood for election, was never elected by anybody. He's a freaking trial judge. That's it. A trial judge is only supposed to have jurisdiction over his little, his, his little district. That's it. But he's, this judge is making decisions for the entire country and telling the president of the United States, who is the executive branch, under Article 1. All executive authority is vested in one person, the President of the United States. Everyone else, all of his subordinates, are simply exercising his delegated authority. He is the executive branch under our Constitution. So we have one unelected lawyer, some political hack who probably got his job 
who got his appointment from President Obama because he bundled a lot of campaign money for him or something like that. He did some political hackery for him. You know, he was probably some, uh, you know, I don't know, personal injury lawyer or something. He held some fundraisers for Obama. And as a political payback, Obama gives him a uh, trial court district judgeship. So now we have a slip and fall lawyer, political hack, who bundled money for Obama, probably. I mean, I don't know this particular guy's story. But whatever, some political hack for Obama. Never elected anything. Now he wears a black robe. And from his one little district, he tells the executive branch what it may and may not do. A district court judge elected by nobody is giving orders to the President of the United States. You read the Constitution. You read the founders. You read the framers of our Constitution. And you tell me if that's the system they created. Is that what the Constitution prescribes? It sure as hell is not. The Constitution does not give district court judges that authority. The court does not the Constitution does not even give the Supreme Court that authority. If you want to get right down to it. Let me put it to you this way. Because people are big on the co-equal of co-equal branches of government cliche. Well, let's test that little cliche for its accuracy, shall we? If you have three branches of government and one of those branches gets to tell the other two what to do and neither of the other two get to tell that one branch what to do, do you really have co-equal branches of government? Does that sound like a co-equal situation to you? One branch gets to tell the other two what to do and nobody could tell that branch what to do? That doesn't sound co-equal to me. That is a system of supremacy. One branch in that scenario is clearly supreme and outranks the other two. Am I not correct? There's no other way to interpret that. But that's exactly the situation that we have allowed uh, to, to occur. That's what we have. We have the judicial branch telling the other two branches what to do. And the other two branches don't say a damn word about it. They do nothing. They do nothing. Not only do they do nothing, they just continue to give more authority to the courts. They cede the courts more and more authority and don't question them. They would rather the courts decide these things. Why? Because, because then they don't have to. You got to remember, politicians care only about getting reelected for the most part. The most, most of them. That's it. That's all they care about. And what's the best way to get reelected? Don't cause any controversy. Don't get people mad at you. And the best way not to get anyone mad at you is not to make any hard decisions. So especially members of Congress, they don't want to make any hard decisions. So they are happy to let the executive branch make those decisions and they are even happier to let the courts make those decisions. Especially Democrats and the rhinos. Because they know if they let the courts make those decisions, then those courts are always going to side with the left. They are going to be left-wing decisions. And so that's, that's one of the ways we have gotten to this point in American history where we have a system of judicial supremacy. That's exactly what we have. <clears throat> we have unelected judges running 
this country. And I've got an article here from May 21st from CNS uh, News. And I got to tell you, <clears throat> I didn't know what to think about Attorney General Barr when he was nominated. I really, to be honest with you, didn't know too much about him. I knew that he was Attorney General for George H.W. Bush. And honestly, that gave me pause because no conservative was George H.W. Bush. And neither was his son, for that matter. Uh, and so that worried me. Could this guy just be another establishment rhino hack? I had that fear. But I got to tell you, up until this point, I am very pleased with William Barr as Attorney General. He is far better than I had hoped he would be. He's been terrific. Um, he's a smart guy. He talks in ways that I haven't heard other Attorney Generals really talk. That I don't, I don't hear presidents talk. I don't, I don't hear people talk. You know, we should have a lot of our elected officials talking this way, and they don't. And that is, they talk about the con. He he talks about the Constitution. He talks about our founding. He talks in philosophical terms about how our government is supposed to operate. You know, you saw it with respect to this Mueller stuff, and I'm not really going to get into Mueller. Today I might do get into his 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 really disgraceful press conference he had the other day uh, that he did not have to give and and of course you guys you guys know the reason why he did that this was just to gin up impeachment and uh, we might get into to that a little bit more but not the surface level just just the political stuff because the political stuff you guys know I don't need to tell you what's going on politically about that but. I would like, uh, if we get a chance, to discuss a little bit about really the unconstitutionality of Mueller's appointment to begin with and the absolute mockery his investigation and, specifically, how he has conducted himself with his report and then with his this ridiculous announcement the other day, this press conference the other day, um, how he has, has turned hundreds of years of jurisprudential tradition on its head with his renouncements. It's pronounced is really uh, a disgrace. And anyways, uh, so Barr was very, has been very good with respect to uh, the Mueller investigation. And he recently, in a speech to the American Law Institute, addressed this problem with district court judges issuing nationwide injunctions. This is really a, a new phenomenon where some district court judge, and remember, these are just trial court judges. These are the lowest level judges in our federal system. They sit in just small jurisdictions, uh, and, and all they have is trial court authority. And they are you know, doing it all the time now to President Trump, where they strike down some action the president has taken and they issue a nationwide injunction and they say you can't do this anywhere in the country not just in their little district not just with respect to whatever case or controversy is brought to their court but nationwide they just tell the president of the united states you can't do this anywhere district court judges have no such authority Constitution doesn't give them that authority. 
um, they don't have it. This is is um, an absurd overreach. It's unconstitutional, and uh, it shouldn't be allowed. But the Supreme Court has thus far allowed it, and it is uh, a disgrace. Really, it's an outrage, and William Barr is saying some really good things about this. I'm I'm heartened to hear it. So let me read you a little bit from this this article, this CNS news article. In a speech to the American Law Institute on Tuesday, uh, and, and again, this was uh, back on May 21st, Attorney General William Barr warned against the, quote, the novel and growing use of nationwide injunctions, unquote. To make his case, Barr used President Obama's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA, program as an example of executive action never passed by Congress that gave legal status to aliens brought to this country as children. Now, I brought up impeachment a little while ago. You want to talk about an impeachable offense? DACA was an impeachable offense. You can impeach a president not just for crimes, but for uh, malfeasance. Uh, exceeding his authority is certainly one such thing. Maladministration, these, these kind of things. Okay, This was blatantly unconstitutional. Obama clearly violated the Constitution. He created basically a program on his own. Only the Congress of the United States had authority to do what President Obama did. He usurped the authority of Congress. He violated separation of powers. And he uh, rewrote basically our immigration law unilaterally. The man should have been impeached and removed from office for that alone. If you want to, if you want to really talk about impeachment, uh, we should have talked about that then. But you know, first black president and all that crap. Where was I? What Obama implemented by executive action, President Donald Trump tried tried to wind down by executive action. But two district court judges in California and New York prevented Trump from ending DACA by issuing nationwide injunctions. Quote, This saga highlights a number of troubling consequences of the rise of nationwide injunctions, Barr said. First, these nationwide injunctions have frustrated presidential policy for most of the president's term, with no clear end in sight. We are more than halfway through the president's term, and the administration has not been able to rescind the signature immigration initiative of the last administration, even though it rests entirely on executive discretion. And that's exactly right. What Obama did, and it, well, it's actually not exactly right. Uh, because to, to say that it, it relied on executive discretion implies that the president had this discretion at his he did not have this discretion the constitution did not permit the president to do what obama did he has no such discretion under our constitution so that is not correct but i don't mean you know the, the point was not to nitpick that but i just i don't want to let that go uncommented upon that it, it, he doesn't have that discretion but to the extent that he did this on his own the president obama did this unilaterally this was not pursuant to a law he just did it with executive action well president trump wants to undo what he did with executive action perfectly fine but the courts have said no you can't do that so obama does something by executive action 
but Trump cannot undo it by executive action. How absurd is that? Apparently, we're not allowed to undo anything that the saintly Barack Obama did. The Constitution does not apply with respect to Barack Obama. If Obama did it, it must live forever. No future president can undo it. Congress can't undo it. No court is going to undo what the president did. Thank you, Judge Roberts and uh, Obamacare. But so so that's that's where we are. Like I said, um, Obama should have been impeached for this. But he obviously was not going to happen. So he, he does this by executive order. Trump tries to undo it by executive order. He gets shut down by the court uh, with judges in California and New York issuing nationwide injunctions and telling the president, nope, you can't do it. Sorry, Obama could. You, no, you can't. Barr noted that the Justice Department has tried for more than a year to get the Supreme Court to review the lower court's decision keeping DACA in place. But so far, the Supreme Court has not granted any of the requests and is not likely to until mid-2020 at the earliest. Okay, and see, this is what I'm telling you people. I mentioned this with respect to President Trump's uh, national emergency declaration and people saying, oh, well, the Supreme Court will. Oh, don't worry about that. The Supreme Court will overturn those judges who said he can't do it. Oh, really? Are you so sure? And if they do, when are they going to do it? Because that's pretty important too. If enough time goes by, then the point becomes moot, right? Now look at this. Trump tried to overturn this DACA crap early on in his administration. Courts slapped him down. Trump has been trying ever since to get the Supreme Court to overturn those dishes. And then remember, when when these, these judges in California, I remember it, when these judges in California and New York slapped Trump down and didn't let him end DACA, you know, people on our side say, oh, don't worry about it. The Supreme Court will overturn them. Oh, really? Have they so far? Nope. And uh, they don't appear to be uh, in any rush to do so, if they ever do it at all. If they ever get around to it, when is that going to be? After the president's first term? When he might not be reelected? And at that point, it's moot. Because if we have a Democrat president at that point, he'll just, um, you know, keep that program alive. So it, I don't know why people have faith in the courts. I mean, I really don't. I, it's it's infuriating. Look, the Supreme Court has screwed up so much. And yet people on our side still seem to think that the court is going to come down on the, the right way all the time. Really? Roe versus Wade is still on the books. One of the most absurd legal opinions in American history, based on absolutely nothing in the Constitution. Made up a, a right to murder unborn babies out of whole cloth. It's not there. But it remains on the books. Absolutely absurd opinion. Uh, you know, you have faith in that court that won't overturn that? That's an easy case to overturn. It may not be politically easy, but really, should are, are Supreme Court judges supposed to be worried about politics? That's why they have lifetime appointments. Specifically, so they don't have to worry about politics. But as a legal matter, it's a no-brainer to overturn that. There's no basis in the Constitution whatsoever for Roe versus Wade. It, the Constitution, in fact, compels that that case be overturned. Here we are, still in full force. You have 
faith in a court that won't even overturn that ridiculous court decision? Uh, your faith is misplaced, my friend, if you have such faith, because you should have none. You should have no faith in our Supreme Court. Yes, they do the right thing sometimes, but you shouldn't assume that they're going to do the right thing. That's a fool's errand. Second, continuing with the article, this is Barr. Second, these injunctions have injected the courts into the political process, Barr said. The first injunction from the Northern District of California came down on January 9th, 2018. In the middle of a high-profile legislative, uh, in the middle of high-profile legislative discussions, hours earlier that same day, President Trump allowed cameras into the cabinet room to broadcast his negotiations with bipartisan leaders from both houses of Congress over the Dream Act, border security, and broader immigration reform. Of course, once a district judge forced the executive branch to maintain DACA nationwide for the indefinite future. The president lost much of his leverage in negotiating with congressional leaders who wanted him to maintain DACA nationwide for the indefinite future. Unsurprisingly, those negotiations did not lead to a deal. So his point is well taken. When the court injects itself into this process, makes these decisions like this, uh, then what point is there for the president and the Congress to to reach any sort of deal when the courts are just going to have the final say on everything anyway? And here Trump was using the DACA program in these negotiations as leverage in, in his negotiations with members of Congress. Once the, the court ruled, hey, Trump, you can't get rid of DACA, well then there goes his bargaining chip, right? So we have the executive branch negotiating with the legislative branch as it is supposed to happen. And then the court injects itself in and blows up the whole process. The court has absolutely no role in that, and yet it injects itself. This is the problem, my friends. This is the problem. So a little bit more about these nationwide injunctions. He went on to highlight five ways in which nationwide injunctions are inconsistent with the American legal system. I just want to read you uh, three of these. One, they violate the separation of powers. And they do. The Attorney General argued that the courts have no authority to strike down laws, but only to resolve disputes among parties. Exactly what I'm telling you. The Constitution applies Article uh, 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 authorizes Article Three courts only to decide cases and con controversies. That is, only to make decisions on the immediate case before them between litigants. That's it. But today, he said, courts have assumed the role of gatekeeper with a judge acting as a one-man council of revision, not only embraces a judicial role that the framers rejected, but also diminishes the constitutional prerogatives of Congress and the executive. Exactly right. Uh, second point. Nationwide injunctions inflate the role of individual district judges within the judiciary, giving a single judge the unprecedented power to render irrelevant the decisions of every other jurisdiction in the country. And that's exactly right. Remember what I said. District court judges are the lowest of the federal judges. They are just trial court judges. They have small districts over which they preside. That's it. There's like 800 of them scattered across the country. Something like that. Six, 800, something like that. A lot of district court judges. But one of these district court judges is going to make a nationwide injunction and essentially just crowds out all the other district court judges. So now some other district court judge is not free to rule on the same issue. 
Who's to say that that other district court judge wouldn't rule differently? So Barr has a good point here. And finally, uh, I'll leave uh, with this, this point. Nationwide injunctions conflict with the nation's litigation system, treating the first case as if it will be the last. Unlike the Supreme Court, which issues nationwide rulings following earlier efforts by lower courts. And he's right. So you go to a district. This is how it's supposed to work. This is how it's always worked through our history. You have an issue, right, that affects lots of people. And, and people bring cases in courts. And they live in district, different districts. So they bring their cases in different courts all across the country, right? So you will have district court judges all across the country hearing virtually the same issue with respect to those individual cases that are before them. Now, these district judges might reach different conclusions. And then the litigants might appeal, so it goes up to the circuit court. Now, we have cases from those district courts in different parts of the country being appealed, and they will likely go to different circuit courts, depending upon where they are. Now, you have appeals courts, these circuit courts, basically dealing with the same issue uh, in those respective cases that have been appealed up. And they may reach different conclusions or they may reach the same conclusion if they all all these various uh circuit courts are in agreement they basically all come to the same decision oftentimes the supreme court will not take up the case because there's no uh discrepancy between the circuits everyone's kind of in agreement and 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 you know the court the supreme court generally doesn't take up those cases where there is no difference between the circuits on the other hand you might have the circuit courts coming to different conclusions. So now you have appeals courts weighing in on this virtually the same issue and reaching different conclusions. So now we have uh, one decision applying in one area of the country, different from uh, how it is applied in another area of the country. Oftentimes the court will take up that case. The Supreme Court will take up that case to resolve the uh, discrepancy among the circuits. Now, this can't happen when a district court is issuing a nationwide injunction. Why? Because the matter is settled, right? He issues a nationwide injunction from one, his one little stupid district court. He issues a nationwide injunction, and so the president can't enforce this anywhere, and so there's got not going to be any more cases anywhere on this because the the president has been handcuffed across the country and so it's not an issue anywhere there's not going to be any more court cases no other district court judges are going to weigh in on it there's not if there if there's going to be an appeal it's only going to be from that one district court to that one circuit court and that's it there's not going to be any uh different rulings in any other courts for the supreme court to resolve you know it just it just um you know it throws a wrench into the entire judicial process as it has always worked throughout our history. Uh, so these nationwide injunctions have got to end. They have got to end. Uh, and the Supreme Court can end them at any time they want. Any time they want. And uh, the Attorney General apparently is on the case. Hopefully he is going to look for a case to appeal to the Supreme Court on the basis of one of these nationwide injunctions and try to get the court to stop this practice. But we'll have to see where it goes. Now let me just make 
and to reiterate, a, a couple final points about this problem with judges and judicial supremacy. We're going to have to push back on this. At some point in time, the President of the United States, whether that is President Trump or some future president, and I don't think it's going to be President Trump, although I would love to be proven wrong, I would love to see this, some president is going to have to defy, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm beginning to lose my voice a little bit. <clears throat> some president is going to have to defy one of these courts. There's no way around it. The idea, see, this is how we deal with it. What happens is some district court judge issues a nationwide injunction <clears throat> or does something he has absolutely no authority to do under the Constitution, tells the president what to do. Here, here's a good example. You know, on this immigration stuff and, and President Trump trying to build a border wall and taking funds, as authorized by Congress, taking funds from the military in order to construct this border wall. And some district court judge tells him that he can't do it. That is a perfect opportunity for the president to ignore the ruling of the court. Tell him to go pound sand. The court has absolutely no authority whatsoever to do that. The president, I would love to see. It's not going to happen, but I would love to see it. Make a speech explaining why this court has absolutely no authority to do this. And that this is a national security issue, which it is. And that the Constitution of the United States gives the president the authority to handle matters of national security, which it does, and that as a result of that, the president is going to ignore this court and begin construction on the border wall to hell with what the court said. Defy the court openly. Uh, I would love to see that. It's not going to happen, but that's what should happen. And at some point, if we are ever going to get serious about this balance between the three branches and, and combating this judicial supremacy scenario that we have allowed uh, to come into being. This is what's going to have to happen. And this would be a perfect example because the president would be absolutely in the right. This is a national security issue. We are being invaded by foreigners. Now, we may not be, be uh, in the process of being invaded by foreign armies, but we are nonetheless being invaded by foreigners. There, there is no other rational description for what is going on across our southern border. We are literally getting more than a million illegal aliens. A million foreigners a year are violating our sovereignty, coming into our country in violation of our laws. That is an invasion. <clears throat> that is a national security matter. The president has full authority to take whatever steps he deems appropriate in order to repel that invasion. He does not need a district court's approval. And if a district court steps in and tells him he can't do it, the president of the United States, the uh, president of the United States should tell that district judge to go fuck himself. That's what should happen. And there are past presidents in our history who would have told the district court judge exactly that. That's what needs to happen. 
The president has full authority over national security. He is commander-in-chief of the military. He should be building that wall no matter what some district court says. And he should have had and he should have ordered the military to the border wall to repel this invasion. And passe comitatis does not freaking apply. Because they would not be they would be in, uh, repelling an invasion, not enforcing domestic criminal law. All right? So it's just ridiculous. Anyways, that's what needs to happen. Open defiance of some of these rogue judges. But it's not going to happen. You know that if, if he did that, there'd be you know more calls for impeachment and all that. I get it. I get it. But just as, as a more philosophical point, remove ourselves from, from this moment in time. Uh, divorce ourselves for a moment for purposes of this discussion from the actors involved. Forget Trump. Forget immigration. Forget it. Just philosophically speaking, we have a rogue judicial branch that is far exceeding its authority under the Constitution and telling the executive branch what to do. The executive branch should tell the judicial branch to go pound sand. That's what should happen. But that's not what we do. Instead, what we do is some district court judge sticks his nose where it doesn't belong, where he has no authority to stick it, orders the president of the United States what to do when he has no authority to do that. And what do we do? Well, we just appeal. We just appeal his decision to another court that is out of control. So in the the cases we've been discussing here, this district court judge in California slaps the president down. And so the president's going to appeal that decision where? To the Ninth Circuit. What do you think the Ninth Circuit's going to do? And then after the Ninth Circuit upholds the trial court judge, then we beg the Supreme Court to take up the case, which they may or may not do. And then we just have to hope and pray that the Supreme Court does the right thing. So basically what we're doing is what we have. We have a system of judicial supremacy where the courts exceed their role and tell the executive branch what what to do. And the only thing the executive branch does is appeal to the judicial branch and begs them to change their mind. That's insanity, my friends. That's insanity. That's a stupid system. That's ridiculous. That's not what is compelled. <clears throat> when the courts exceed their role, they should be ignored. That's it. If you don't ignore the courts when they exceed their authority, then what you're saying is the uh, there is no limit on the court's authority. Because if we have to abide by the court's decision, whether or not it's grounded in the Constitution, whether or not they have any authority whatsoever to issue that ruling, if we're going to abide by whatever the hell it is that they say, then we are ceding our authority to the courts and we are saying that the court is supreme and they are running the show. That's essentially what we have right now. And the idea that the president can be slapped down by the judicial branch and then the only remedy we have is to beg the judicial branch to reconsider and change its mind, then we have no co-equal branches of government. The Constitution is meaningless. We have judicial supremacy. We have tyranny of the judiciary. That's what we have. And there are only two real ways to deal with it. One is to defy the courts. 
The other is to start impeaching judges. That's it. Other than that, and, and in truth, we should be doing both of those things. But those are the only real options we have. Or, or there's another, there's another option um, to the extent we can, we can do it on particular issues, uh, is to remove the subject matter jur jurisdiction from the courts completely. The Constitution gives the Congress the authority to limit the court's jurisdiction. And we can just say that certain things are not reviewable in the courts and take it completely out of the court's hands, and there they have absolutely no authority. But you know what will happen. They'll just ignore that, too, and stick their nose in it anyway. So then you're right back to the those other two options, which are the only two real options, because they wouldn't, they wouldn't abide by their jurisdiction being limited. They'll just find some way to say that, oh, you can't do that, or, uh, well, that law doesn't really limit us in this way anyway. So <clears throat> they would just evade that anyway. So theoretically, we could limit their jurisdiction, but they won't abide by it. So you're back to the starting point I just laid out, which is you have two choices, either defy the courts or starting impeaching judges. If some of these judges were worried that if they exceed their authority, they might be impeached and removed from office, they wouldn't dare take the chance of risking their cushy life appointment. They would do the right thing. They would stay the hell out of it. Oh, if you can hear my dog, something's going on out there. <clears throat> Anyways. Okay, I guess someone's here. That is your option. Defy the courts, start impeaching judges, if we were serious about ending this judicial tyranny under which we currently live, we would be doing both of those things. But we are completely and utterly unserious, and we are doing neither of those two things. We just continue this merry-go-round of insanity where we get slapped down by the judicial branch, and then we go back to the judicial branch and beg them to change their mind. Well, folks, that's insanity, and if that's all we're going to keep doing, then don't expect any different result. We will continue to live under a judicial tyranny. All right, I think that's enough uh, on the courts. I've already gone much further than I had hoped. Normally, I like to keep these things at about an hour. I'm already at about an hour and a half, and I still have more to discuss. Normally, I would leave this for a future podcast, but let me tell you what's going on. I am busy as hell. That's what's going on. And I haven't been able to record the podcast as often as I wish. Currently, given my schedule uh, and the things I need to be doing, <clears throat> I would like to do this, uh, record the podcast once a week, uh, hopefully on Fridays. But we're just, you know, it's going to be touch and go. I'll just have to see. I apologize for that. I wish I can give you a really clear schedule about when the podcast will be coming out, but I just I just can't do that right now. Um, and you know if uh, if I get picked up by some uh, by somebody syndicate this or something and and uh, it starts making money and then I can stop doing some of the other things, well then that would change the scenario. But as it is right now, uh, other things have to take priority. And that's just the way it is. So once a week is about all I'll be able to do it right now. And for that reason, 
I'm going to go ahead and just try to push through a couple of these other things today and uh, see if I can get to it. I don't want to put it off till next week because next week I'm sure there's going to be other things I'd rather talk about. Here's another issue. <clears throat> and by the way, I bemoan this all the time. Just as an aside, we've got a problem with our... Eh, you know what? I'm not going to go there. I was just going to say, again, that we've got a real problem with our conservative pundit class and what they choose to focus on. All we get is the political drama of the day. We don't get a discussion of the issues. And, and at the end of the day, it's the issues that are the most important thing, not the daily political drama in Washington. Because no matter what's going on, whatever stupid things we're arguing about, and some of them aren't so stupid, you know, this Mueller crap is obviously a big deal, but we do get caught up in some stupid stuff. You know, those stupid things are going to come and go. Even the whole Mueller fiasco is going to come and go. Even if Trump is ultimately impeached, that's going to be, a, you know, that's going to come and go. And, and in a few years, that's not going to matter. Um, not that I'm saying we should ignore that whole issue. If they try to launch impeachment over this bogus stuff, obviously we've got to, we got to get to it then. We're going to have to roll up our sleeves and fight that. That's no laughing matter. But even that will be a short-term issue. These other issues, this flood of illegal aliens, this is forever going to alter our destiny as a country. And a lot of these other things, the socialism that's on the rise, the judicial supremacy problem that we have, these things are going to far outlive and have a far greater effect on uh, a far greater effect than anything else we're discussing right now, including any possible impeachment of the president. These things are more important than that because they will affect future generations, the future of our country. And ultimately, if these things are not resolved the right way, these things are going to collapse the country. Now, there's, and that's not hyperbole. That's that's what's going to happen. So here's, here's, um, here's another issue that our conservative pundit class largely ignores, and that is... This push to abolish, in a, in essence, not not really abolish, but in essence, change the way the electoral college operates, rendering it moot, and 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 moving us to a national popular vote as the way we select a president. As you know, right now, the way we elect a president is through the electoral college. The states um, have a certain number of electors based upon their congressional representation. And currently, you have to win a state to win its electors, and then it's those electors that determine who wins the presidency. That's how the Electoral College works in a nutshell. And because Democrats in recent years, in 2000 and then uh, in 2016 apparently won the popular vote but lost the presidential election in the Electoral College, which is all that matters. Uh, that means we have to abandon the Electoral College because it didn't go the Democrats' way. And anytime something doesn't go the Democrats' way and uh, the Constitution was the reason, then we have to get rid of the Constitution or ignore it or bastardize it or whatever the hell we have to do to get around it to make sure that Democrats um, are never on the losing end of whatever it is. So. Since they were recently on the losing end of the Electoral College system, we have to get rid of the Electoral College system. That's the way it goes. They care not about the Constitution. They care not about what the um, impact will be going forward. They just care about immediate political issues. Getting themselves reelected, getting the next pre uh, president being elected as Democrat. That's all they care about. 
So what they want to do is uh, they want to get a bunch of states together to agree that however the popular vote in the country goes, that is how their state will um, assign their electors. Okay, That's how their electors will be, um, will be voting. See, the way, the way the Constitution works is the states are given the authority how to determine the manner in which their electoral votes uh, will be decided. Okay, So, a state under the Constitution may decide that they will assign their electoral votes to whoever wins the national popular vote. The Constitution gives them the right to do that if they wish. Right now, the states assign their electoral votes to whoever wins the popular vote in their state. Now, there's a couple of states that assign them slightly differently according to uh, congressional district, but most of the states, whoever wins the popular vote in that state wins all the electoral votes. That's how it works right now. What this push for, what, what this compact, this national vote compact seeks to do is to get a bunch of states to agree that they will assign their electoral votes to whoever wins the national popular vote, even if that candidate lost in their state. So that's what they want to do. And if they get enough signatories to this compact, then it doesn't matter what happens in the rest of the states. If they have enough states, if they get to the point where the, st the number of states that signed on to this have an aggregate electoral vote total of 270 or more, which is what is needed to win the presidency, then that's all they need. If they have 270 electoral votes in the states to agree to assign their electors to the winner of the national popular vote, then um, nothing else matters. And uh, right now, <clears throat> boy, they, they keep chugging along. Here's an article from, I don't know when this is from, it was recently... It was from recent, uh, I don't know, Washington Times. The Nevada Senate approved Nevada. I know it's Nevada. I don't know why I say Nevada. I just always have. The Nevada Senate approved Tuesday a national popular vote bill on a party line vote, sending the legislation aimed at upending the Electoral College to the governor. Assembly Bill 186, which passed the Senate on a 12 to 8 vote, would bring Nevada into the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, an agreement between participating states to cast their electoral votes for the winner of the popular vote. If signed as expected by Democrat Governor Steve Sisolak, Nevada would become the 16th jurisdiction to join the compact, <clears throat> along with 14 states and the District of Columbia. The compact would take effect after states totaling 270 electoral votes and with Nevada, the state uh, the total would reach 195. So, <clears throat> with Nevada, they are now at 195 electoral votes. What they need is another 75, and they will be there. Now, the Constitution requires that interstate compacts like that get approved by Congress, but depending upon you know future Congresses and all that, this may well. <clears throat> come into being and get approved, essentially um, rendering moot the current electoral college system that we currently have and moving us to a national popular vote. That would be such a nightmare. And most people 
don't realize what a nightmare it will be. It would be. <clears throat> Boy, my throat is really getting bad. I hope I'm not getting sick here. Ah, cold coffee. Nasty. Anyways, <clears throat> you know, I, I, the people on our side who are opposed to this, and rightly so, point out the obvious, which is true, that under such a scenario, the big states would basically control the country. California, New York. And the small states would be left without a voice. And that's all, that's all very true. But I would like to focus on another aspect of this. You know, uh, some serious people, myself included, have worried that we really could be heading towards a, a civil war of sorts in this country. I don't know what a second civil war would look like. But I do not discount the possibility that this country could descend into civil war again. And uh, there are many people who have raised this as a concern, given the divisiveness of our politics and the polarization and the hatred um, of the left and all of this stuff, uh, and, and the way in which they want to impose their will on the country. These people want to... These people want to do away with fundamental constitutional rights like the Second Amendment, like the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, free exercise. They want to use the Establishment Clause to suppress all religious speech and practice. There are so many things that the left would do, given the power, to deny us our fundamental liberties. And those are some of the ways um, in which some people have suggested that we could descend into a civil war. The Second Amendment is one of those things that people think that uh, could lead to civil war if they ever tried to confiscate firearms, and, and that certainly is a possibility. I think another way that we could descend into civil war is by moving to a national popular vote scenario for electing a president. There would be, uh, apart from the issues raised about uh, smaller states having becoming virtually irrelevant in the election of a president, another thing that you would see is no certainty in the outcome of elections. Our electoral college makes the outcome certain. <clears throat> Whether you like it or not, and even if the popular vote goes against the electoral vote, the vote in the Electoral College, we still have a certain result. And it's a fair process and we all see it. It's a constitutional process. <clears throat> if we move to a national popular vote scenario, <coughs> excuse me, if we move to that sort of a scenario, we will not have, a lot of times, um, certainty in the outcome. And the reason will be because there will be so much voter fraud going on in that scenario, I don't think that we can even comprehend how much voter fraud. And I, I brought this up before and people say, oh, we already have a lot of voter fraud now. The, the amount of vote fraud we have now, which is considerable and which is downplayed and underreported and ignored and all that, which is true, we have considerable vote fraud right now, which is a big enough problem. But the level and degree and kinds of vote fraud that we would have if we move to a national popular vote system of electing a president 
would make this look like kids play. The, the, the vote fraud would be off the charts across the country. Think about it. Right now, it doesn't really benefit Democrats to engage in vote fraud in a lot of places. Because most states... Look, the thing with vote fraud is, <clears throat> if it's not sufficiently close, vote fraud isn't really going to help you all that much. Okay? You can overcome a deficit in a close election with vote fraud. If it's a blowout election, a 10-point election, something like that, you're not going to make that up with vote fraud. So it's, it's a pointless exercise. And so Democrats don't try, you know, really hard to win some of these states with vote fraud. You're not, Democrats aren't going to win Kansas with vote fraud. Okay, it's not close enough. Um, they're not going to win Oklahoma with vote fraud. It's not close enough. Okay, but they might win Florida with vote fraud. They might win Pennsylvania with vote fraud. They might win New Hampshire with vote fraud. They might win Arizona with vote fraud. You know, some of these states that are close, they very well could win with vote fraud. But in these states where it's not close, they're not going to bother. Uh, and they don't need really to to use vote fraud in states that they're clearly going to win either. Now, it's not just the red states that aren't close. There's no There's no real point in using vote fraud to try to elect a president uh, in California. California, all those vote, all those electoral votes are going for the president anyway, for the Democrat anyway. There's no need to try to use vote fraud to get the Democrat elected in California. Ditto Illinois, ditto um, New York, and on and on. <clears throat> so you don't need to engage in vote, vote fraud in a lot of the states, in most of the states, if you're a Democrat and you, you know, Vote fraud is one of your go-to tactics for winning elections. Uh, at the presidential level, you don't really... It's, it's kind of a pointless exercise in most states to uh, try to use vote fraud to win at the presidential level. Now, <clears throat> you get rid of the Electoral College, then we don't have to worry about individual states. Now, every vote matters. So now, states in which they would normally ignore in terms of having concerted vote fraud efforts... They will now engage in massive vote fraud. Whereas before they didn't need to engage in massive vote fraud in California at the presidential level. Well, now they will because every vote counts no matter where in the country you are. Every vote counts because the, how the state votes is irrelevant. All that matters is running up the national total. So especially in states that Democrats control like Illinois, New York, California, Oregon, Washington, all these, these deep blue states. Oh, you're going to see massive, massive vote fraud because those are places where they can really run up their totals, right? Especially, you know, in those corrupt areas where they, you know, and right now they oppose vote, um, voter ID and all that kind of stuff. All those kinds of laws and procedures that are designed to protect the vote and make sure that only citizens who are entitled to vote vote in our elections oh man we're gonna they're gonna get rid of all of those laws for sure and they're gonna enact new laws that make it even easier for democrats to commit mass vote fraud and we're all gonna know it everyone will know it and so we will have massive vote fraud all across the country especially in blue areas to run up the vote totals to win in the popular vote 
and it will result in millions upon millions upon millions of illegal votes, double votes, illegal aliens voting, dead people voting, all this stuff. And it will throw our elections into chaos. We will have our elections will be like a third world country. It w we will be a banana republic at that point if we move to a national popular vote. And if we arrive at a point in time where we have a national popular vote method of electing a president and we have massive vote fraud all across the country and everybody knows it and nobody has any confidence in, in the outcome of elections. And, and let me tell you something. If we go to a national popular vote, we will never have another Republican president. No Republican president will ever get elected, period, end of story. It will not happen. I mean, look at this last election. Trump won handily in the Electoral College, but lost in the popular vote. In 2000, Bush won in the Electoral College, lost in the popular vote. Democrats have a popular vote advantage because these, these big states, these big leftist states, Illinois, New York, and California, have such a massive population and are so deep blue. They are so overwhelmingly leftist and Democrat. They have huge majorities in those states. I mean, in the last election alone, if you took California out of it, Trump won the popular vote. But with, with California in it, Trump lost by like 2 million votes. That shows you just how big of a deal California is with respect to the popular vote. So we already have a disadvantage in the popular vote. You add the massive and widespread voter fraud that will happen under a national popular vote scenario and forget about it. There will be no Republican presidents elected ever again. That's, that's just the way it will be. They will get enough votes no matter what. Even in elections where the Republican would have won if the vote were fair, there's no chance. There's no chance that it would be fair. There would be massive vote fraud. And they will, whatever number of votes they need to put them over the top, they will find. They will find in trunks of cars. They will find in closets. Um, whatever. Dead people will vote in huge numbers. Illegal aliens, uh, you know, will vote in huge numbers. Democrats will vote multiple times. And the lawsuits, the post-election lawsuits that will be all over the country. Because right now, we only get the lawsuits in the really close swing states. You will get lawsuits everywhere. Even in states that aren't swing states, because now it's popular vote. Now every vote matters, and you will see lawsuits everywhere. There will be uh, legal battles for weeks and months on end following national elections and uh, massive vote fraud. It will just, and so when you have that system, just imagine that system, the chaos of that system, and at the end of the day, the Democrats winning every single election. In my mind, you have the makings of a civil war. When, when you have half the population who believes that with every election they are being robbed, the other side is cheating, and nobody has any faith in the process. Look, it's the process. It's the procedures that give us stability. Okay? If we lose trust in those processes, if we no longer believe them to be legitimate, if we no longer have any faith that the outcome was fair and actually reflected the will of the voters, you're going to have anarchy, you're going to have rebellion, uh, you will have violence, 
and you could have civil war. So that's what I think would be a possible result of this uh, horrendous push for eliminating the, the Electoral College. This is serious stuff. And of course, our, you know, our media doesn't cover it. The mainstream media doesn't cover it. And most people on our conservative punditry side of things don't cover it either. Which is why I largely <clears throat> ignore most of it now. Because uh, it does no good. Anyway, so let's see what else. Oh, and by the way, um, while I'm thinking of it, I recorded a bonus segment of the podcast a few days ago. It's up on Patreon. Um, if you want to subscribe over there, it's just $5 a month and you get uh, you can help. Let me tell you what that goes for. That helps support this podcast. I don't have any advertisers. This is all self-funded. So if you want to help keep this podcast going, this free side of the podcast that you're listening to right now, uh, your subscription for just $5 a month, more if you wish, over on Patreon.com, helps to keep this going. It also uh, gives you access to bonus material that I put up there from time to time. And the other day, I recorded a bonus segment of the podcast where I talked about a new unconstitutional proposal by Kamala Harris. She wants to force states to get permission from the Department of Justice before they enact certain laws. I discussed that. Uh, that so that's if you want to help support the show and get uh, get access to uh, bonus clips of the podcast, including that most recent one, go over to patreon.com slash markpantano. You could sign up over there. That would be greatly appreciated. Now, two final stories. I'm just going to do these real quick because I am, where am I at? Boy, I'm approaching two hours and I didn't mean to come anywhere close to this. Okay, uh, here's one. Disturbing number of students say hate speech is not free speech. This from Campus Reform. A new report has revealed that support of the First Amendment among college students seems to be decreasing, as nearly half of students believe that hate speech should not be protected. Conducted by the Knight Foundation, the survey reveals that 41% of college students believe hate speech should not be protected under the First Amendment, while 58% believe that it should be protected. While the majority of students believe that hate speech should be protected, 53% of college women contend it should not be protected as, a well, as well as a majority of black students. All right. All right. These, these idiot cupcake snowflakes did not come to this on their own. Okay. This is what they are being fed. And this term, hate speech, it's a phony, phony term. This is a made-up term. It's not a real legal term. In First Amendment jurisprudence, there is no such class of speech called hate speech that can be banned. All right? There's no such thing. There is just speech. But these snowflakes have heard the term hate speech all their lives. They hear it in the public schools. They hear it in our colleges and universities. They believe it to be a real thing because their college professors act as if it's a real thing. They use the term hate speech. It's in their textbooks to the extent they even read from textbooks anymore, and most of the time they do not. But hate speech is in their textbooks. Their professors use the term hate speech as if it's a class of speech recognized by the Supreme Court and can be... Um, you know, and, and is inherently dangerous and, and it sh is, uh, should be, 
should be banned and outlawed. They didn't come up with come up with this on their own. They're taught this crap. They are taught no respect whatsoever for the First Amendment. They have no. They obviously have no idea what the freedom of speech in the First Amendment is about. If they think that hate speech, for whatever the hell that is, should be banned. And uh, this is our future, folks. This is our future. We've got to stop this. We've got to get control of our education system, or these people are going to graduate. They graduate thinking thinking this way. Okay, and this idea that, oh, well, once they get out of college and they get in the real world, they'll turn conservative. Why? Just because of taxes? That's the argument I hear all the time. Oh, yeah, they're all liberal when they're in college, but then when they get out and they start paying taxes and they see how much gets paid in taxes, they'll start being conservative. Okay, how is being opposed to the government taking so much of your taxes, how is that going to change their mind on hate speech? How is that going to change their mind on transgender insanity? It's not. Okay? But this is what we do. We don't want to engage the issue. We don't want to confront the issue. We just tell ourselves lies that, oh, well, when they get out of college, they'll turn conservative. That's what's always happened. It'll continue to happen. We're living in different times, my friends. We have leftism. We have left-wing propaganda everywhere in our society now. They're not going to turn conservative, most of them. Some of them will. Most of them won't. Okay, it's not just their pay stub and seeing how much taxes are getting taken out. They have got, they have been propagandized their entire lives. Many of them well into their 20s before they even leave school. They've lived in this left-wing bubble from the time they entered kindergarten until they leave college when they're 22, 24, 28, well, however long they're in there. And even just to get a normal bachelor's degree now, many of them are in there for six, eight years. They're in this bubble of leftism. And that's what these colleges and universities are, especially the residential colleges and universities. They, it, it's a bubble. The real world doesn't enter these, these bubbles. It's a completely different universe on a college campus. The world you and I live in out here in the real world, this looks nothing like college. And college is where they live. Okay, they eat in college. You know, they eat at the at the cafeteria. They live in the residence halls. They work out on campus. They recreate on campus. You know, they play rec sports. They go to concerts on campus. They go to the swimming pool on campus. They go to the tennis courts on campus. They, you know, everything. They don't they don't need to leave campus for anything, and many of them seldom do. They're self-contained little societies. And they're completely controlled and run by the run by the left. They're little bubbles in which hate speech is an accepted term. Okay, where where a man with a penis decides one day that he's a woman and everybody treats him like a woman, and it's hate speech to say that well, you know, maybe he's not really a woman. That's hate speech, and that should be banned, and is banned on college campuses. Okay, so the. the they are <clears throat> programmed in these campus bubbles. And it's very hard to deprogram them after they've lived their entire lives from kindergarten until graduate school or whatever. Uh, they've lived their whole lives subjected to this propaganda. You think that just um, a couple, but you know, a big bite out of their 
paycheck is going to suddenly turn them. No, it's it's not. It's not. And by the way, more and more, that doesn't affect them. All they come out concerned with is their student loan debt. And Democrats' promises to uh, repay all their student loans, cancel out all their student loan debt. That's all they care about. You know, the taxes taken out out of their Starbucks paycheck is the least of their financial worries. Those student loan payments is, is the economic reality that is most important to them, not whatever is taken out of their paychecks. And very little is taken out of their paychecks for most of these kids who graduate and all they're doing is getting jobs at Starbucks or Walmart or whatever, making crap money because they all got crap degrees. And not just the crap degrees, but the problem is everybody graduates college now. And so a college degree doesn't really differentiate you from anybody. So in order to differentiate yourself, you got to go to an even more advanced degree. So a a four-year college degree now is little different than a high school degree was 30, 40 years ago. And so just because you've got a college degree doesn't mean you're getting a good job. And many of these kids are getting crap jobs that pay nothing. They end up at the end of the year, once they file their taxes, getting money back even more than they paid in with the earned income tax credit and all that. A lot of these people are not even paying taxes. They're getting welfare through the tax code in the form of the earned income tax credit. And then they hear Democrat politicians promise to pay back their student loans for them. You think we're going to get them to our side? We're not. Okay, we might pick off a few here and there. Maybe some of the successful ones. But we're not getting the Starbucks baristas, I can tell you that. No, the way we're going to get these people is to stop the propaganda to begin with. That's a whole nother problem. And by the way, one of the things that's got me real busy is I'm trying to finish a book about debating leftists. And um, I don't want to get too much into it now, but I get questions all the time about how to debate these people. And I put some suggestions. uh, I'm putting some suggestions in a book, some tactics, some strategies that should help you. And the point is, the reason I'm mentioning this is what I gear the book towards is is it's not just about trying to convince the leftist that you're arguing with. In fact, that should not even be your goal because most of the time your their mind is closed. You're not going to convince that person most of the time. What you should be concerned with is convincing the other people who might be witness to your debate, to your argument, to your discussion, to your conversation. Convincing those people. Because that's the only way we're going to turn this around. We've got to convince more people to join our side than their side. And we have to undo some of this propaganda, some of this programming that these kids have been subjected to their entire lives. And my book is going to give you some some advice, some tips and strategies uh, for, for doing that. We all got to take part in this, guys. We, we've got to roll up our sleeves and start battling these leftists. Uh, so anyways, anyway, about this hate speech, okay? First of all, as I said, there is no such category as hate speech. If the only speech that the First Amendment protected was speech you agreed with, there would be no purpose for the First Amendment. The First Amendment protects speech that is not popular. That's its purpose, Okay? So that's number one. But number two, if we went down this road, if the Supreme Court at some point in time 
And if we keep going the way we're going, if we lose a few more of these states to the left, or certainly if we go with the national popular vote and only Democrats get elected president, we're going to lose the Supreme Court. We're going to have a solid block of leftists controlling the Supreme Court. And at some point in time, they will recognize a category of speech, call it hate speech, and then say that, that, that the states and that Congress can ban such speech and punish such speech. We will reach that point in this country because you know the left would do it if they got their way. And that includes the court. But if we ever reach that point and the Supreme Court said that you can ban quote-unquote hate speech, well then, man, we're, we're all going to end up in prison or something, guys. Because what would happen is they would begin with, uh, you know, banning certain speech that sounds like the most outrageous, whatever that is. And then they will just keep adding to it and expanding to it and expanding it and expanding it and expanding it. And at some point in time, virtually everything will be um, call anything that they want to call hate speech. They can then ban and punish you for, fine you for, imprison you for. Uh, they do this in other countries. If you say things um, that are not politically correct, you can be locked up. You can be imprisoned. Uh, they do this in Great Britain, for crying out loud. You think that that couldn't happen here? It could happen here. It could happen here. And we have college students. And remember, everybody's got to go to college because everybody who's in college is smarter than people who aren't in college. And here we have, uh, you know, getting close to a majority of college students thinking that we should ban hate speech and that it is not protected by the First Amendment. So keep that in mind. One more thing about colleges and universities before I wrap it up. Here's an article because, um, you know, we've, we're kind of past it now, uh, graduation time, where we're, we're almost getting through most of the graduations. Um, here is the title from The College Fix. More than 75 universities now hold blacks-only graduation ceremonies. I don't really need to read this article for you to understand what it's about. Yeah, this is this is a thing. I've mentioned it before. And it's becoming more and more of a thing. Blacks only. They have black graduations uh, where no whites are allowed. Only, only black students are allowed. And it's not just black only graduations. There are uh, LGBTQ, WXYZ graduations. Um, you know, all kinds of things. Hispanic graduation, all, all this kind of stuff, all right? Um, we have self-segregation on our college campuses now. Yes, you, you know, you were, you were brought up being taught that racial segregation is bad, but you were wrong. Apparently, racial segregation is what the good, smart people on college campuses uh, do now. Racial segregation. And it's not just uh, cere uh, graduation ceremonies. They do it with housing. They have black-only residence halls and gay-only residence halls and all this kind of stuff. So at, at this point in time when we're constantly lectured about diversity and tolerance and all this crap, the same people are pushing segregation on college campuses. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I really need to add to this. I just wanted to bring it to your attention. This is where we are. Of course, you know this is where we are. We see it all the time. And like I said, if I wanted to, I could do nothing but shows dealing with uh, anti-white racism on our college campuses. And, and, you know, it should go without mentioning, but I'll mention anyway. <laughs> Imagine if there was a whites-only graduation on a college campus. No. Of course, you would never see that 
because that would be denounced as racist, that would be Hitlerian, that would be white supremacy, and all that stuff. But a black-only graduation, that's perfectly fine. Uh, a black student union, that's perfectly fine. A black-only residence hall, that's perfectly fine. Whites-only residence hall, of course not, but you know, that's where we are. Not that I'm advocating for a white-only graduation or a white-only residence hall. I am certainly not. That would be just as racist as having a black-only residence hall or a black-only uh, graduation ceremony. We shouldn't be segregating along racial and ethnic lines uh, for any reason. It's all racist. But that is where the left is dragging us to. The Democrat Party, the left, has always been the home of racism, and it continues to be. The Democrat Party used to be the home of anti-black racism. Uh, it still is in, in a large degree. It's just a different kind of anti-black racism. The anti-black racism that you see now from the Democrat Party is a condescending form of racism. You know, blacks are too stupid to do X, Y, Z. That's what Democrats constantly tell us. For example, they're too stupid to get a photo ID in order to cast a ballot. So anytime we want to have a law to require a photo ID in order to vote in an election, the Democrats immediately say that that's racist against black. The clear implication is that blacks are too stupid to figure out how to get a vote, photo ID and to vote. So that's the kind of anti-black racism that we get on the Democrat Party now. But what they also are now is the home of anti-white racism. And that's the really cool, in vogue sort of racism that they can all outwardly talk about on the left. They, they are very open with their anti-white racism now. You hear the white privilege. That's just, you know, their fancy way of saying we hate white people. That's what white privilege is about. All of that stuff. Um, they are anti-male male privilege, you know, all that crap, toxic, toxic masculinity and all that. Their anti-black racism, which is, which is there, that condescending anti-black racism, racism, that's there. It's just, um, they're, it's more subtle. They're not as open about that. They couch it in other terms. Uh, but their anti-white racism, they're right in your face with that. And nowhere is that more obvious than on a college campus. They are out with it. They are proud of it. They teach it. It's a normal thing on college campuses. And as I've warned you all before, this is at virtually every college campus. It doesn't matter what state you live in. It doesn't matter whether you're a private school or a public school. This is almost all college campuses across the country have been infected with this uh, left-wing propaganda and the racism and the bigotry um, and all of it. So that's it. I have gone way over. But on the other hand, I've given you plenty to listen to for the next week until we do this again. So to those of you who have listened through to the end, thank you so much for doing so. It means a lot to me that you would listen to what I have to say. If you would do me a favor, and if you haven't done so already, please go on whatever platform you listen to this program on and leave me a positive review. I know that you can leave reviews over on Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes. Uh, please leave me a positive review over there. Please help um, 
Spread the word about this podcast. I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, please help me grow it. Thanks again for being here. And until next time, remember, continue to fight the left like your freedom depends on it. Because it does.